Hello and welcome to Search for Truth. Thanks for joining us again. We continue our concentrated study into the Gospel by Mark uh, today in the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, it's good to have the pleasure of your company again and that of our Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, of course. Brian's study today is called Losing Life, Denying Self and Becoming Little. If we want to know what discipleship means, then it makes sense to learn from the one we're following. That's Jesus, of course. So Brian takes us into the Gospel once again to learn more about the events that are recorded by Mark and to look behind them to discover what Jesus is seeking to teach his followers in particular, as well as others who happen to be listening. So today we progress through to chapters 9 and 10 if you wish to follow in your Bible. But now to Brian. Thanks, John. Yes, and if you've been following us, you'll know that Mark has just described the mountaintop scene when Jesus underwent a change that briefly allowed Peter and two other disciples to see his glory. We're left wondering why this happened. Why does Mark write about that here? There must be a connection with what has just gone before it. And what was that? It was the first plain mention to his disciples of what lay ahead for Jesus at Jerusalem. In other words, his crucifixion coming immediately on the heels of the confirmation that he was the Christ, the long-awaited king, this seemed a total contradiction to these disciples. What's more, Jesus had gone on to speak of how, in following him, the disciples could expect to lose their own lives. Two of those who saw Jesus' glory were James and John, who were still dreaming of being next to Jesus when he would shortly, as they thought, set up his kingdom on earth. They'd still to realise that before future glory with Jesus, there lay a path of shame and self-denial. Beyond that, could it be that the mountain scene was intended as a reassurance that the future glory was for real? But then we come down to earth with a bang. For descending to the foot of the mountain, they rejoin the rest of the disciples who've been struggling and failing to effect an exorcism. It's a pathetic case. In fact, Mark gives us here one of the longest and most graphic accounts of any victim. It's a young boy writhing on the ground. Perhaps, as a doctor would, Jesus asks the boy's father how long it's been like this. Lifelong, is the reply, from childhood. That inquiry tests the father's faith, for he pleads, If you can do anything, if you can, Jesus repeats, before saying all things are possible to him who believes. At once the father confesses this lapse and asks the Lord to help his unbelief. At this, Jesus commanded the evil spirit to leave the boy, which it does, but not before appearing to leave the boy looking so much like a corpse that many there declared that he was in fact dead. But Jesus raised him up and all was well. The language here reminds us that Jesus has been teaching a lot recently about death and resurrection and about his followers losing life now and saving it in the next world. This takes faith and that's the lesson highlighted from this incident too. It seems as if Mark is presenting things in threes at the moment for we now come to the second of three occasions in three successive chapters, when Jesus plainly tells his followers that he's heading towards a shameful death before being raised from the dead in glory. In talking about this, Jesus consistently uses an Old Testament title for himself as Son of Man. Back in the Old Testament, prophets such as Daniel had associated it with their expected king who'd come to reign in glory. 
Now Jesus is repeatedly using it in connection with terrible suffering. This is really hard for these disciples to get their heads around. They're confused, and it just doesn't register. The fact that they can't compute it might excuse in part their really inappropriate response whenever Jesus talks like this. Each time in Mark's Gospel in chapters 8, 9 and 10, when Jesus shares the sad news of the painful death that awaits him, the disciples on each and every occasion think of their own interests in chapter 8 or about which of them is the greatest in chapter 9 or who will get the best seats in the house, in chapter 10. This is crass insensitivity in the extreme, but it happens each and every time. Jesus is focused on losing his life, but his disciples are seemingly obsessed with saving theirs. Displaying the most remarkable patience, Jesus sat down with them and explained that the way to being first was to become last and least. Jesus drove home the point with an object lesson. He set a young child before these power-hungry men, and then embracing the child, explained that to receive a child in Jesus' name was to receive Jesus himself. It was easy to dismiss children in those days as being insignificant, and Mark, over the page in his Gospel, records an example of these very disciples shooing away children in case they should bother Jesus. Jesus stopped them doing that and reinforced then the same lesson, again taking children in his arms. What is it with children? Well, children are generally oblivious to others' reputation and blind to the differences of class and status. Like their master, Jesus, the disciples would need to be ready to make themselves of no reputation and accept the need to become little before they could ever be big. Jesus also went on to warn his followers in the strongest terms that they should be careful so as not to mislead any little ones who believe. What an amazing teacher Jesus is and how expertly he puts his points across. At this point, at the opening of chapter 10 of his gospel, Mark chooses to insert a record of a testy conversation the religious leaders or Pharisees initiated with Jesus. It was on the vexed topic of what are legitimate grounds for divorce. These religious leaders were being quite insincere. Their only interest in Jesus' answer was to create controversy by attempting to have Jesus identify himself with one or other side in an ongoing heated debate of those times. How easy or how hard would Jesus make divorce? But with perfect wisdom, Jesus neatly avoided the trap by returning them to God's original standard for marriage right from the beginning of the book of Genesis. Back then, Jesus was saying, in God's plan, divorce was never in the frame at all. There's no doubt the strength of Jesus' reply even took his own disciples by surprise, and they had to ask him privately for further confirmation. It was as if Jesus... In the wider context of this section of Mark's Gospel, as if he was saying, do you remember I was telling you about losing your life in this world for my sake? Well, here's an example of the sort of self-denial that following me could involve. It may mean for you that you must surrender the right to another marriage that others enjoy after they've divorced. After this, Mark narrates an interesting incident from chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him, 
and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, the man was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's a faith-inspiring statement, and we should repeat it and emphasise it. What's impossible for us is possible for God. You remember when Mark told us earlier in this section about when the disciples couldn't perform the exorcism of the boy whose case notes we were given in great detail. The lesson back then was, all things are possible to him who believes in God. That strengthened the faith of that boy's father, and it encouraged the faith expressed through prayer on the part of the disciples. Here, in dealing with a question posed, what must I do to inherit eternal life, it's about faithful salvation. Salvation meaning knowing all our sins are forgiven and we are no longer guilty before a holy God. At the beginning of his answer to this questioner, Jesus picked up on his polite mode of address when he addressed Jesus as good teacher. It's not enough to think of Jesus as only a good man, a good moral teacher. In God's sight, the Bible diagnoses none of us humans as being good. Jesus, however, was not denying that he was good, but rather affirming he was both good and God, for God alone is good, and we are not. Next, Jesus mentioned five or six of the Ten Commandments, all focused on how we should lovingly treat our neighbours. Why does Jesus do this, we might wonder? The Bible is adamant that our own works cannot bring us salvation and eternal life. For example, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, We are saved by God's grace through faith and not by our own works, for salvation is a gift God gives to those who believe. Why then does Jesus list several commands? There are at least two possibilities. His follow-up challenge to the young inquirer was about going away and giving up all that he possessed to help the poor. Perhaps this was to show that by failing to do this, the young man was wrong to claim he was loving his neighbour in an absolutely perfect way. Or maybe this man's money was his God, which was why Jesus hadn't yet dealt with those commands about loving God first in our lives. In either case, and this is the main point, Jesus showed that even the best of us cannot humanly satisfy the demands of God's law in our own strength. It's impossible. The disciples at that time understood rich people to have been favoured by God, 
So if they could not be saved, then what hope was there for others? Jesus confirmed that salvation is impossible for humans to achieve by themselves, no matter whatever amount of religious work is performed to try to impress God, even as this man had attempted. But wonderfully, Jesus explained that God has made salvation possible for all who believe. Jesus ends this section by once more summing up the main message of these chapters. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. My heart raises As usual, I remind you there's a book which contains all the transcripts of the talks and it's available on request. You can make it your own uh, by just writing in, uh, either by post or by email. Uh, You can uh, obtain it by asking for Take Your Marks Gospel. And by email or by post, you can do it. And here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, the Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And did you know that by looking up churchesofgod.info forward slash media, you'll find our church's main website where you can download some actual programmes and their accompanying transcripts as well and also uh, access other helpful material. So I hope you get on all right and uh, time's almost up now. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's talk, found it helpful and I hope you can join us again next week for a further study in Mark's Gospel. Until then, it's cheerio. Very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you. The heart was there.